Our text for this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the word of God for us this morning, and I pray that we will obey it and that we will resist every temptation to resist it. Remember, remember that one time you Gentiles were without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Remember that you were hopeless. It is not something that Paul found people doing and said to them, oh, don't do that. That's not good for you. It's important. It's an essential part of the Christian walk. It is not to be leapfrogged over on the way from verse 10 to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near. That kind of leapfrogging has landed the church plop in the kettle of lukewarm Christianity, wondering what's wrong, what's wrong? Why do we pray with so little fervor and affection? Why do so many sing but scarcely from the heart and with such blank expressions? Why are so few hearts breaking for the lost people around us who don't know Christ and are on the way to perdition? Why do not more people say spontaneously and repeatedly with Dr. Wyden, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved? Why isn't the experience of salvation like the first day of vacation? When the sun is just rising over the lake and the air is crystal clear and cool and the fish are biting and the bacon is sizzling on the fire and the whole family is healthy and happy. Why isn't salvation like that instead of like a gray, drizzly day with a hole in the tent and the family grumbling and murmuring? One of the reasons is this. You can't bring the burner up to white hot affection if you try to short circuit God's heating element and jump the current from verse 10 to verse 13. Part of God's heating element to intensify our affection and deepen our devotion is remember, remember, remember that once you were 
hopeless. And I can't think of any better day in all the year to drive home this word of God to Bethlehem Baptist Church than the last Sunday of the year. The doctrine for this morning's meditation is simply this. It is of great spiritual value to remember the hopeless condition in which we were and would yet be apart from sheer grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, to make the doctrine plain and useful, let me make three answers to questions. The questions are these. What should we remember in specific? Second, how should we go about remembering it? What's the nature of the remembering and the methods methods we can use? And third, why? What's the value? What benefits will come? First, then, what should we remember? Remember, the text says, that once you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to all the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, the first thing to notice from that text is this. Salvation is from the Jews. For a non-Jew like me, a Gentile, to have any hope at all, I must cease to be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I must become a fellow citizen with Israel, a fellow heir of the promises made to Israel. There is no salvation outside true Israel. And when redemptive history arrived at the incarnation, remember last Sunday, it did not split into two redemptive histories, one for the redemption of Israel and one for the redemption of the Gentiles. It simply opened and expanded so that all believing people of any race are now embraced and included in the one redeemed people of God, the true Israel. Now, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, Paul teaches a mystery. It wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. But the mystery is this, verse 6, that Gentiles, that's you and me, are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As Paul says, says elsewhere, Galatians 3, 9, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. By faith, Gentiles join the true circumcision. They become real Jews. And even though we are, as Paul says, wild olive shoots, nevertheless, by faith, we are grafted in to participate in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. And therefore, we must never boast as though a Gentile program had replaced a Jewish program. We are simply, graciously and freely made participants in the promises to Israel. 
There is only one people of God, the vessels of mercy, true Israel, who, according to Romans 9, 24, God called from Jews and from Gentiles. Now, I count it as a Gentile. My most precious possession to be joined to Christ, the seed of Abraham, and thus made myself an heir of the promises of Abraham. I'm excited that true Israel's destiny is now my destiny. I stand on tiptoe expectation waiting for Messiah and the establishment of the glorious kingdom of the son of David. But if I am to love him the way I ought, and if he is to find faith on the earth when he comes, I've got to do what this text says and remember, remember, remember that once I was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel instead of being a full fellow citizen. Once I was no fellow heir at all, but a stranger to the covenants of promise. And once I was without hope and without God. In other words, Paul is saying, remember very simply from what we have been saved. If you're like me, you might be saying to yourself now, well, I was saved when I was little and I've never known anything but the life of faith. And therefore, I don't have anything to remember. It's a misunderstanding of the text, I think. That text is not just written for those who have grand conversion stories. My guess is most of us in this room don't. The text is written for all Gentiles who ought to look back on what they were before they were saved and what they would be today apart from grace and remember of the misery that it would be. We'll see in a moment what that, in fact, would be. We would be without hope and without God. Let's zero in on that one phrase for a moment. What does without God mean? Notice in the text that it comes after the statement, strangers to the covenants. Now, that probably suggests that being without God, the opposite of that would be expressed in those covenants. For example... Genesis 17, 7, where the covenant of Abraham is made. I will establish my covenant between me and you, says the Lord, and your descendants after you to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And similarly, in Jeremiah 31, 33, the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God, and they will be my people. If you remember way back to the Sermon on the Covenant of Abraham a few weeks ago, do you recall that the meaning of having God as our God was that it means he is for us and not against us, and that we are the beneficiaries, therefore, of everything that an infinitely loving and powerful God could possibly do for us? That's what it means not to be without God. 
It includes justification, holy, working of all things for our good and an eternal life forever with him. Therefore, when Paul says that once we were without God, he's not simply saying that once upon a time we were kind of ignorant and lacked some knowledge about a being in heaven. He means rather, I think, remember that once God was not your God and if he was not your God, he was not for you. And if he was not for you, he was against you. He was not your justifier, but your condemner. He was not offering you eternal life, but there only lay before you an awful prospect of judgment. And that's just what Paul wants us to remember, isn't it? Remember that apart from Christ, almighty God would be against you. You would be storing up wrath for yourself day after day. For the appointed righteous day of judgment, according to Romans 2, 4. Apart from the free and unmerited mercy of God, there is only eternal torment to be expected and awaited. In a word, Paul says, we were utterly without hope. Therefore, in answer to our first question, what are we to remember? We are to remember that the entirety of our hopelessness was very, very great and awful. Now, the second question is how to remember. And I mean how in two senses. What was the, what's the nature of this remembering in the experience of it? And what are methods we can use to perform it? Surely Paul does not mean when he says remember Simply call to mind, have it in your head, be cognizant of. Surely he means let it grip you, let it seize you, let it move you when you think from what you have been saved. An intellectual recollection of what our plight was and would be without grace is of no spiritual value if it does not move the heart. My guess is that every Christian in the world, when asked objectively, give me a list of the things you've been saved from, can do it. And they're not moved. Why? It's not real to them. It's like the lady in the circus. Remember, she's on the wheel like this and spinning around. And there's a man who's pretending to throw knives at her. And when it's all over, she comes backstage and you run up to her and you say, oh, wow, aren't you glad you're safe? Aren't you glad you're alive still? She looks at you kind of funny and says, it's a trick. The knives pop out of the pop out of the wheel. He's not really throwing knives. Nothing to get worked up about. That's the way salvation is, evidently, for many people. It's just a, a fake threat. We've been saved from nothing to get worked up about, nothing to say the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Don't say that. For goodness sakes, it's just a trick. It's just a fake threat. But Paul says, remember that you were hopeless. Treat your plight without Christ like a fake threat and you'll never be moved. Never. He wants us to know it. 
and feel it and be gripped by it. What are the methods? How very practically can we move in this direction? Four things that I have tried to use for myself. First, this is a miracle we're asking for this morning. And therefore, prayer is number one. Pray that the Lord soften your heart. If you are not a person who is easily moved, not easily touched, not prone to tears, has very seldom any emotion, pray that it not be so. It isn't good to be that way. Pray. Pray that your heart be melted and softened and moved by the awful things of reality. Second, ponder. Ponder with your mind your plight, unassuaged guilt, meaningless existence, the doom of eternity, waiting, waiting. Read the scriptures, lay it out before you and skip no verses. Do no leapfrogging. And third, now these you may not have thought of before. As you walk through life, look at the misery around you. Misery physically, disease and mutilation. Look at it. Look at the misery psychologically, suffering of depression, all manner of retardation and disturbance and abnormality. Look at the misery morally. Hardened sinners and wicked people and unrepentant criminals. And as you look, say, there but for the free and unmerited mercy of God, go I. And I don't mean that suffering people are without grace. What I mean is that all the misery in the world ought to be a visual reminder to us that apart from grace, our end is going to be as bad as all of that summed up into one experience. And here's the fourth means. The one that perhaps is most helpful to me of all. Use your imagination. Create in your mind situations in which you are almost dead. And saved. For example, remember the day that when you couldn't swim and you were walking in the lake and you went into a hole and lost your footing and went under and gasped and had a split second to wonder and how you hugged your daddy's neck when he picked you up just in time. Remember when you were five years old and you were shopping with your mommy in Dayton's downtown on Christmas Eve and all of a sudden she was gone. And you looked around and you were terrified and the tears just popped out of your eyes and you started to cry and how you hugged her skirt when she found you. Use your imagination. Remember the time that you were rock climbing. This is personal experience now. And you maneuvered your way out onto a sheer face 
with no safety rope and all of a sudden found yourself in a position where you knew if you moved, you'd fall. You could not get away from it. You could barely inhale without losing your balance. Did you not kiss the rope when it fell from above? God has given us prayer, the scriptures, illustrations of misery in the world, and imagination. That we might remember with feeling and be moved by our condition apart from Christ. The third and final question that I wanted us to raise was, why? Do all this. Why remember? What is the spiritual benefit of remembering? And I only want to mention two things. I have a much longer list, but I'll only mention two. The first one is illustrated from Ezekiel 16. And it's this. Remembering the days of our hopelessness guards us from. Now listen carefully. From boasting in our redeemed Condition from beginning to trust in whatever beauty God is beginning to create out of the rubble of our former lives. The picture in Ezekiel 16 is of a of Israel and Israel is a baby that was born and thrown on the ground with its navel, not even cut, weltering in its blood. God comes along, sees this baby takes it, washes it, rears it, marries it. And that's us. Now listen. When I passed by you, I saw you weltering in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live and grow up like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full maidenhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. And when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yea, I plighted my troth to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord. And you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with leather. I swathed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. You grew exceedingly beautiful and came to regal estate and your renown went forth among all the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor which I had bestowed upon you, says the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your renown and in all your abominations You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and weltering in your blood. Had they remembered, they wouldn't have trusted in their beauty and committed harlotries. Let us learn from Israel The second benefit is that remembering makes us cherish our forgiveness. 
Oh, we'll love our forgiveness if we remember. We'll say with Dr. Wyden, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. He says it to me every time I visit him. And I love him for it. Do you remember the time that the prostitute came to Jesus? He was at dinner with Simon the Pharisee. Watch out, Simon. The, the prostitute who had experienced utterly unexpected cleansing and forgiveness from Jesus came in and started crying and her tears wet his feet and she took her hair and wiped his feet and then she anointed them with oil and rubbed it in to take away the hard calluses of all the walking. And Simon was indignant. If he knew who this was, he wouldn't allow that. Jesus turns to Simon, tells him a parable. Simon, there once was a man who had two debtors, and one owed him $500, the other owed him $50, and they couldn't pay, so he forgave them both. Which one's going to love him more? The one who I suppose owes him $500. And Jesus simply says, that's right, Simon, and that's why she is moved and you That's why she can cry, Simon. You can't. Now, don't misunderstand. Simon is a sinner. Great sins. You remember what Jesus said about self-righteous Pharisees in Matthew 23? He called them sons of hell. Don't misunderstand Jesus here. What he's saying is that if You knew, Simon, if you knew, if you remembered from what you have been saved, if you are saved, you'd be on your knees at my feet crying. We would cherish him if we remembered words of affection, men, men. Words of affection would not stick in our throat like a foreign language. Teenagers, you would not blush to praise his name. We would not sing with blank faces. We would not pray with rote mechanics. If we remembered and felt from which we have been saved. If you feel you have been forgiven little, you will love little, and we love little. Hence the sermon. I do not believe that it is possible. I do not believe that it is possible to cleave to Christ with white-hot devotion if we don't remember from what we've been saved. Periodically rehearse it to ourselves. Therefore, Simply the text again. Remember that you once were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, no hope, no hope, and without God in the world. Shall we pray? Great God, I'm asking for a miracle this morning. 
Nothing I do or say as a mere man can touch anybody's soul. And therefore I pray that's number one. And I will pray again. And we all will pray. That you move us, Father. And that right now, as we move through this act of remembering worship, you will bring us out into adoration and love to you. Grant us to be able to say repeatedly and from the heart with Dr. Wyden, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved.